Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs it in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Once again, the last Adam, the last and greatest prophet, uses that heavenly phrase, thus says the Lord, to begin our section of text today. But before we, can big, before we can dig into what he is saying, we should make sure that we know who he is saying these things to. For in the telling of this illustration, we're never told who it is that Jesus is speaking to. Here, once again, those pesky human helps that have been added to the text come into play. Those chapter breaks and verse numbers. Not to help us so much, but to actually hinder us from being able to follow the logical flow of the conversation and the interaction that was taking place. This opening sentence, verse 1 of chapter 10, is not a standalone thought. We're not supposed to think that on some random day Jesus was just standing there and he just popped up with this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Or that those standing around him were wondering, where did that come from? Why did he say that? This entire section of scripture, this illustration, and this encounter are all tied back into the events that transpired in chapter 9. Those events that began when Jesus passed by a man who was born blind. That section of scripture highlighted the sixth miracle that we're told about in the book of John. The opening of the eyes of the man who was born blind. And then the ramifications of being called by Christ as one of his sheep. And as that man who had been born blind in order that the works of God could be demonstrated in him. And how he found out. Being a Christian. Being moved from the family of Satan into the family of God, having your blind eyes open to the reality of life does not, will not, make this life easier. Better, yes. Easier, no. This man who has spent his whole entire life blind, being an outcast, was, at the end of that encounter, no longer blind, but he was cast out cast out by the religious leaders get this because he believed in God in Christ and it was after he endured the interrogation by the Pharisees after his parents threw him under the bus after all of his neighbors had turned him in and turned him over and after once again being shunned by all of these that Christ finds this man and reveals to him the one who had opened not only his eyes, but his heart as well. And this man believed. And then Jesus says something really strange. He tells this man, and all those that were standing there at that moment, that it was for judgment that he had come into the world, in order that those who say that they see, I'm sorry, who don't see, may see, and those who see may become blind. That's verse 39 of chapter 9. The key to understanding this illustration, 
that we're looking at today is found in verse 39. And understanding the meaning behind it. Because Christ said that he had come for judgment. But the Bible tells us, and even in the book of John, that Jesus didn't come for judgment. John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then again, John 12, 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There seems to be a contradiction here, a glaring one. But only when you miss the reality of the purpose of Christ coming. We're told in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Six chapters later, in the book of John, Jesus says, For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that purpose was a rescue mission that only Jesus could accomplish. And then five chapters later, Jesus being confident in the, in the sovereignty of his Father tells him and us, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that which you have given me to do. So what was this work, this purpose? John 10.10 I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this all ties back into chapter 3, to those famous verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The primary purpose of Christ's coming was judgment. But that judgment happens in the propitiation of the sins of all those that the Father has given to the Son. The primary purpose for Christ's coming was in order that our judgment, the judgment of all that have been given Him by the Father, could be, would be, cast upon Him. Our judgment happens to Christ. In Christ, all others will be judged on that last day, and that judgment will happen by Christ. So you can see how Christ did come for judgment. And at the same time, he was, uh, he was not sent by the Father to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Every person who ever lived will be judged by God, has already been judged by God. The difference is that for the elect, that judgment has already happened to their Savior, who has taken upon himself the sins of his people. For the vast majority, though, the judgment by God will happen on that last day and will happen by Jesus instead of in Jesus and will lead to eternal condemnation, not eternal salvation. But it was after the proclamation that he has come to judge that Jesus then begins giving to those that are standing there on that day this illustration of that truth. In that day and age, sheep were a big deal. They were a primary means of making money and eating on a consistent basis. 
And for this reason, people in the community would come together and build a sheepfold, a, a communal sheepfold in a central location, a place to bring all the sheep at night or during a storm for the primary purpose of protection, protecting them from predators, weather, and even thieves. And that sheepfold would only have one door or gate by which the shepherds would bring in the sheep and then take them out. This is the picture that Jesus is painting. Something that they all knew, they all understood. It was just a known fact that only the shepherds would enter by the, th uh, by the door and that thieves could not enter by that door because it was protected. The thieves would have to find another way in. Verses 2 and 3. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verses 2 and 3 continue that picture. In them we're told that there was a gatekeeper, someone whose primary responsibility was, not only was to allow only the shepherds into the sheepfold. Allow only him to access or them to access the sheep. And only the shepherd enters through the gate for a specific purpose. To call the sheep by name. Not in a generic, impersonal way. These weren't huge flocks of animals. Too large for the sheep not to be known. These were small, well-cared-for, well-tended flocks. And the shepherd knew each of his sheep personally. Shepherding back then was accomplished differently than it is today. Today, people use dogs to round up and move sheep, which means that they're pushed and directed. In that day and age, these shepherds didn't push their sheep. They led them, which means they went before them. They would direct the path of the sheep by walking it themselves. And the sheep knew their shepherd, trusted him, and for that reason followed him. They were safe as long as they followed him and stayed with them. In that day, there was more of an intimate, real relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. But sheep today are still the same as the sheep of that day. They're not easily pushed or directed. That's why humans don't do it. We're not able, we're not um, equipped to be able to do this. This is why we train dogs to do this, because they're faster, more agile, and have a ready bite for those sheep that won't obey their desires. And if humans try to push sheep, they, like goats, will run in every direction you don't want them to go. <laughs> sheep are not very smart animals. And as everyone who has ever raised them will tell you, they're always looking for a chance to get sick, to get hurt, or just to die. And the Bible uses the image of the people of God being sheep, his sheep, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old. And Ezekiel 34 speaks of the leaders of Israel as shepherds of God's sheep. And most of us think that this is a compliment. It really isn't. Let me give you three examples why we humans are referred to as sheep. One, sheep are not very smart animals. All other animals know and can spot danger. Not a sheep. 
Every other animal will run out of the road if a vehicle is approaching them. Not a sheep. They'll just keep standing there. Or worse yet, they will actually dart out in front of an incoming car. On a side note, this isn't the same thing that squirrels do. They're just trying to get you to wreck. <laughs> um, second, sheep are prone to wander. They're not smart enough to know that there's safety within the flock. They just start going in a direction and will meander out on their own. And at the same time, sheep have a herd mentality. They love to go with the flow. If one of them starts moving quickly in a direction, the rest of them are going to take notice and they're going to go with them. And it doesn't matter where that sheep is going. He could be heading to the edge of a cliff and they're going with him. But sheep do know their shepherd. They do know his voice and they will follow only him, which brings us to verses 4 and 5. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. All of this is foreign to us, or something that we might know secondhand, but not so for these men. Even though they weren't shepherds, they knew all that Jesus was saying firsthand. They'd seen it. They had lived it. They knew how sheep were cared for. And that all that Jesus was saying was just common knowledge. Verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. They understood the story. The basic context and means that sheep were cared for. They got that. But they completely missed the meaning behind the story. They stood there looking at him with a blank look on their face and said, And? These same men who had just asked Jesus if in fact they were blind. These same men who Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see. And because of that, your guilt remains. These men stood there not understanding why Jesus gave them this illustration. They missed the meaning behind what he had just told them. And the reason that these men could not understand Christ has been told to us already in the book of John. John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus has already explained why these men do not understand him or his teaching. John 8, 47. The reason why you do not hear my words is that you are not of God. Saints, never be surprised that a person will not cannot understand the truth of the gospel or get Christianity. They are the same as these men. They have not been given the eyes to see or the ears to hear. They are still dead in their trespasses and sins, at least for that moment. At the same time, we who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, we must be about our Father's business, which is the sharing of his gospel with them. 
but never be surprised when that truth means nothing to them. The ability to comprehend the truth of who God is and who we are outside of him is a gift from God. He must open the eyes of our heart. He must replace our dead, stone-cold heart with a living, God-beating heart for us, any of us, to understand these truths. But also understand that every aspect of seeing or understanding the Word of God is a gift from God. It is not your own doing that you should boast. You have to be one that the Father has given to the Son, one who has been drawn by the Father, one whom it has been granted by the Father. It is all of and by God. Which is why we, who claim to hold to what has been deemed Calvinism, should be the most humble of people when it comes to the Word of God. But unfortunately, there are those that may have been given the eyes to see the truth of the doctrines of grace, but they haven't yet had those truths sink into their heart. This is usually called the cage stage of Calvinism. When the Lord first opens a person's eyes to the reality of the doctrines of grace, they will very often start trying to show everybody the reality of predestination, election, perseverance of the saints, and the complete and utter dependence of man on, uh, of man on God to bring about salvation. But in their zeal, they missed that they are trying to force-feed these truths to those that have not yet been given an appetite or taste for this glorious food. They think that those people that they're talking to that aren't getting these things are just stupid or foolish. These people sh are, should be locked in a cage until they actually have the understanding in their head sink to their hearts. That's why it's called a cage stage. We must remember that most of us, if not all of us, were born again as semi-Pelagian, thinking that we accepted Christ. We did that. Simply because on this side of, your, of the reality of eternity, we actually did do that. We were like this one blind man who was standing there at that moment. He believed in God. He believed in Jesus as the Christ. And he worshipped Jesus as the Christ. He did that. This is why correct biblical theology matters. Why we must get that all things are from God. Even the ability to understand or comprehend the meaning of scripture. We do not do that. But because we are semi-Pelagian, we can all very often forget that all things spiritual are a gift from God. This is why these men were not getting the meaning of this illustration. This could actually even include that, that once blind man. This is why correct biblical theology matters. Why we must teach and preach the ordus salutis right. The what? The order of salvation. Because we humans do the repenting. We do the praying. We do what seems to be the accepting here in this realm. So we think that we have control over it. 
free will abilities toward it. But even in our illustration, the one that we've been reading, we see the order of salvation being given and the free will of man explained. That free will is, is what we see happening in verse 4 when the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and follow him. Well, but isn't hearing and deciding to follow a free will choice? Didn't the sheep do that? Didn't they make that choice? Yes, they did. But the question that you have to ask yourself, you have to think through, is why don't all the sheep follow that shepherd? They can all hear his voice, but only a select group follow him. Why? Is it because these sheep are smarter than the rest? Because they have carefully analyzed all the shepherds out there and determined that this one is the best of the lot, and so they're going to follow him? We may do the repenting here in this realm, but God is the first and primary actor in salvation in the real heavenly realm. Something that Paul explains to the saints in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, he says, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you notice in those opening sentences how Paul speaks of this salvation? He begins in the far distant past, before the foundation of the world. In the heavenly realm, he tells us that it was then that he gave to his son an inheritance. And then he moves forward in time to the son and then tells us that in the death of that son has brought us the redemption that he predestined to those that he chose before the foundation of the world. It is after this and completely outside of anything that we have done that he then moves forward in the explanation of the gospel. It says in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guaranteed of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be thinking, sure, God may be the primary operator in this order salutis. Maybe he predestined, but isn't that like a parent knowing what their child's going to do because they know human nature? 
Isn't predestination the same thing as a parent knowing that their toddler is going to go and play in that water feature because they know the kids can't help but love water? Maybe he predestined me, but I still do the accepting in my free will. This is where we need to be able to ex correctly explain this concept of free will. After all, Joshua does tell us, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who served the, in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in, which, in the land of which you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Sure sounds like we got this whole free will thing. Sounds like we do get to choose God or not. But even there, Joshua told them that they couldn't choose God and even why. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Verse 19. And the very next thing those people do in their free will is to argue with Joshua and tell him that they will and can serve God. They say, and he says, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away your foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Yahweh, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Verses 22 and through 24. These are the last words from the book of Joshua. Then comes the book of Judges, which chronicles over and again just how much these people who claimed to choose God did not follow him. They chose to follow their version of God. In their free will, they chose to follow the man-made God that they had set up in their hearts, the God that they desired, not the God of the Bible, the one who is holy, who is jealous, who will not forgive the transgressions of any that tried to approach him outside of his son's propitiation and the heart to recognize their need of a savior and the fact that they are not that savior. These people thought that choosing God was a human decision like choosing which clothes you're going to wear or what car you're going to buy. God clears up this thinking in chapter 2 of Ephesians, telling us exactly what our free will is able to choose and not choose, and even why it is this way. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oh, okay, so we were children of wrath, a son of disobedience. But that still doesn't prove that we don't have the ability to choose or follow Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I want to stop right here in the middle of these verses. What does this mean? Because there's two different states of being spoken of here, dead and alive. Most people, even small children, 
understand the concept of dead and alive. Toddlers know that dead puppies aren't much fun. They don't come when you call. They don't chase after a ball. Live puppies do those things. Live puppies come when you call. Sometimes. Live puppies will chase after a ball. We are told that we were dead. And don't get hung up on that in trespasses thing, trying to make that a descriptor of what we were dead in, trying to say that we may have been dead in that, but we were alive in other things. Being dead in trespasses is the same thing as saying that a body is only dead in breathing. Dead is dead. Being dead in that is still not being, is not the same as being alive. And then we're told that this once dead person is now alive. And there too is a descriptor is given as to what they're alive to. They were once dead to something, and now they're alive to something. When we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead to Christ. But now we're alive to Christ, which means that those that we are dead to those trespasses that described our life before. Did we do this? Did we make the free will choice? To go from being dead in sins to alive in Christ. How are we told that this move happened? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were children of wrath, he made us alive in Christ. A person does have free will. We all do. This is a gift to God for everyone. We choose things daily, minute by minute, and perhaps even second by second. But we cannot choose outside of our nature. We can only choose that which is inside our nature. Which is why understanding the Ephesians text is so important. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were alive to our sin nature. We had free will in that, but we were dead in Christ. We could not choose anything within him. That doesn't mean that we couldn't be nice or kind or giving or even religious. Because these men that Jesus were talking to were most of those things. And he said they were dead in their sin, that they were not children of God. They were not alive to Christ. They were not able to hear his voice. And they could not because they were not of God. Back to the Ephesians verses. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a, it is a gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast 
You can't reconcile that last sentence with those that want to claim that Christ died for everybody and that everybody has the ability to choose him or not, that they have free will, that they can accept, choose to accept him or not. How is that choosing not a work? How is this not your own doing? And if this is done by free will, how could you not then boast about making a right choice, making a good choice? We are all saved by two words, but God. It is all about, through, and even to him. And the radical truth is, is that every one of his sheep that he saves will hear his voice and will come to him. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This, too, is one of the doctrines of grace, and it's called perseverance of the saints, which is just, just as a fancy way of saying that once saved, always saved. And this doctrine has fallen on hard times during this past century, mostly because of the revival meetings and crusades that have taken place where countless numbers of people respond to, accept Jesus into their hearts, repeat a prayer, raise their hands, fill out a card, and then go home unchanged. They are the same as the Israelites who told Joseph that they have chosen to follow and serve God. And because of this, pastors have had to deal with the fact that all those numbers actually never translate to church members. Or those that do come don't stick around. And instead of openly, candidly questioning the profession and the proclamation of these people, and the salvation that they, these pastors, are offering, they come up with a false doctrine that says that a person can lose their salvation, which makes perfect sense in their theology. Since if you're telling people that you have the ability, the free will ability to accept Christ into your heart, then it only follows that you have the free will ability to decide to no longer accept him in your heart. You've lost that loving feeling. These pastors are like the Pharisees that Jesus is telling this illustration to. Dead in their sins, sons of Satan, outside of God and worshipers of a false God. And did you hear the one thing that Jesus said about these, his sheep? These that he has redeemed? The one thing that identifies them as his they hear his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the strangers or the voice of strangers. Does this describe you? How do you react when you hear a false gospel being preached or shared? How do you act when you hear people say that God loves everyone and has died for everyone? that you can be a Christian and not obey the word of God. Like the clear word, like being a member of a church, like not forsaking the gathering of the brethren, which means showing up every time the church doors and corporate worship is happening. How you act and even where you attend church 
is the indicator that Jesus gave for those that are his sheep. This is why what church that you're a member of matters. That man who is preaching, who is the preaching pastor at that church, is the under-shepherd. He is the under-shepherd to somebody. Do you hear the true shepherd every time that he is in the pulpit? If not, if the complete counsel of God's word is not being preached, then you should be able to identify this as truth. And if you are of the fold of Christ, you will flee from that man and from that church, no matter the inconvenience or cost, because that man is not speaking with the voice of your shepherd. Jesus has painted a picture. A secure structure which, in which sheep are kept. A structure that has one entry point. A structure that has, at that entry point, a guard that will let only the shepherds in. And within that structure, each shepherd has sheep. His sheep. And those sheep belong to him and listen to him. Okay, we get all of this. But with one statement, Jesus refocuses our attention to the thing, the thing that he wants us to understand is the focal point of what he is stating. Jesus, once again, for emphasis, for clarity, for truth, uses the heavenly phrase once again. And once again, he follows it up with a phrase that no prophet ever used before, could ever use before. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I, I am the door of the sheep. Thus says the Lord. Truly, truly, that's what it means. Thus says the Lord. Ego ami. I am. This illustration has never been about sheep. They, we, are not the primary focus of it. It has always been about the way to those sheep, the access to them, the means that they are cared for and directed. Do you see just how self-centered we are? We get so hung up on being a sheep. We want to argue about what sheep can and can't do. What power and authority we as sheep have. But none of this has been the purpose of this illustration. For us to find self-worth in being a sheep and thinking that because we listen to the voice of the shepherd that we have actually done something. This illustration, this picture has always been about one truth. The divinity of Christ. The claim being made here by Jesus is crystal clear. I am God, not a lesser God, not sent by God, not an angel of God, ego and me. I am. But just like with any door, this one swings in two directions. Not only guarding and protecting and directing the sheep, allowing access to them, but this door is also 
and more importantly, the only access for the sheep to the Father, the one who has given the sheep to the Son. He is the only door, the eternal door, that has always been the only way in or out. Something that he says in verses eight. In verse 8. He says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse 8 can be a hard statement to understand. Because it not only makes clear that the sheep of God will not listen to or follow false prophets and a false gospel, but he also says that all that came before him are thieves and robbers. Well, we would agree that that would describe those religious leaders those Pharisees that are standing there. They were thieves and robbers. But what about David? What about Moses? What about Abraham? And the prophets and the judges? Jesus said all. And he meant all. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But David, Moses, Abraham, the prophets did not come before Jesus. They came in him by him and through him. This is where that divine indicator that Jesus gave to us in verse 7 comes into play. Because he is the I am, he is before those men. They were under shepherds of his. They were in his employ. And in fact, they were, are, in fact, sheep of his fold. They spoke with his voice, and his sheep did hear and obey and he tells us in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Again, ego emi. And then he says something that is revolutionary, extraordinary. Verse 9 of our text. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Before Abraham was, I am. And then he states absolute truth. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This is the good news. There is a door, a way, not many ways and not many doors, not secret passages to being saved, not personal entry points that you've got your own key to, no places where you get to decide in and how you are to enter into salvation I am the door, and through me is salvation. And what does Jesus mean by this will be saved thing? What is that will be saved? Saved from what? And to what? This is only one of three times in the book of John that this term be saved is used. The first was in John 3.17. And the last is used in John chapter 12, verse 47. And as we will see when we get there, judgment and the purpose of Christ is given then, as it is in John 3, as it is here. This is important if you want to understand. If you are his sheep, if you are to hear his voice, what is he talking about? What is this be safe thing that he's talking about? especially in light of the very thing that he says about those that are saved, because they enter through him. They will go in and out and find pasture. What does he mean by this? What is this be saved thing mean? 
The best illustration for this truth can be found in another picture painted by one of his sheep, who was, in fact, one of his under-shepherds. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, I get that the God is my shepherd thing, but what about this shall not want thing? What is David talking about here? Because there are lots of things that I want, and I'm pretty sure that I've been redeemed. Well, the wanting thing that David is speaking about here is the complete and utter fulfillment of every aspect of our spiritual needs and desires. In him, God the shepherd, is life and life more abundantly. We will never lack anything that we need or even desire in him. In him is life. He is the door. And if you find that you still do want, you may want to follow the admonishment of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and test yourself to make sure that you are, in fact, in the faith. Check your heart and make sure that you are in him. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. Here in verse 2, David gives us a glimpse about what this never wanting thing looks like. And because of the Bible, we know what David is talking about. He's not talking about this life, this physical life. Because there were many times that David was not in a green pasture or beside calm, still waters. There were many times in his life that his life was a tsunami of unrest and turmoil. Many times that it was a dust of a sandstorm. There were many times that he was being chased, pursued, trying to be killed. But the green pastures and the still waters are those that Jesus speaks about in verse 9 of our text. Those that all, anyone who enters into his sheepfold through him are directed to and from. They are the pastures of those that are saved. They are the eternal heavenly rest for our souls. The fulfillment of our souls that has already happened in the regeneration of our hearts. And then verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here, in this one verse, is a summation of all that David meant concerning green pastures and still still waters, and even not wanting. This is the proof that the Lord is his shepherd and why he will not want. Saints, does your heart know this as truth? You may have already uh, memorized Psalm 23. You may not have had to turn there to look at it because I've got it in my head. But do you know it? But how often do we not feel like this is truth? I don't feel like my eternal desires have been met. And very often I don't feel anything, even when I come to church. I can't even say that I feel God all that often either. Saints, this is a reality. 
This is truth. And God is sovereign over this truth. This can be and probably will be you at some point in your walk with God. Will be the reality of your life. And God is sovereign even over this. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians verses, or chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, he reminds us of this truth that although we have been given the knowledge of the salvation of Christ, that we possess it, we possess it in jars of clay, not pots of gold or steel vaults. And he tells us that it's given to us in jars of clay in order that the surpassing power of God can be shown. This is why the word, the truth of the word, must reign supreme in your life. Because he knows in this world you will have tribulation. But fear not, I've overcome the world. You are a crackpot, but he has overcome the world. But what do we do when this is our reality, when we don't feel God? What do we do when our days are drudgery, when God seems distant, when coming to worship is boring, when reading my Bible is the last thing I want to do? This is where we have to understand that being saved, while being spiritual, while being the true work of God, and that that true work happens in the spiritual and by God, we do have a part to play in all of this. Because God created you in his image, and he has given you a mind that can think, can comprehend, and can know. And he has created truth. There's this untruth being advanced in our world right now that there are no truths, just your truth and my truth. But there's only one truth. This is an attack on the word of God by our enemy because God is truth. And Jesus desires us to know this truth as truth. Jesus, or John 14, 6, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Again, he's the way, the door. He is the truth, and he is the life. He is not a feeling. He's not a fad, something that you once felt. And I don't feel that way any longer. Feelings come and go. But faith, like muscles, grow and diminish and grow and diminish. Truth re remains forever. Again, this is one reason why, why your testimony is so important. Because there stood a man on that day that Jesus was giving this illustration about that sheepfold. A man who claimed faith in Christ, who was standing there at that moment, listening to all that was going on. And he may have mixed emotions about what was happening. But he knew I was blind, and now I see. This is why David, I'm sorry, this is why what David says about being a sheep is so important. He leads me in righteousness, not in pleasantness, not in good feelings, in righteousness. And he is the one doing the leading. You're not directing yourself into righteousness. He is. 
Okay, so what do I do when I don't feel God? Follow the shepherd. Think back on the truth that you know in your life. I was blind, and now I see. I didn't do this. He did. He's leading me. I'm going to follow. He has given me his word. I will dig in and lean in harder. Lean in. In the free will that you now have been given to do this. Because you do now have a new nature. You have been given the Holy Spirit. And you can rest assured that he will lead you in righteousness. Because he's doing this for his name's sake. Listen to verse 10 of John 10. What Christ your Savior proclaimed is truth. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Once again, there's a contrast being made. These sheep had life before coming in through this door. But what they had was not the life that Christ came to make better. He came to give them life and life more abundantly, which is different than the life that they were living before. Jump back to Psalm 23 with me once again. Let's pick up where David left off. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Can you now see more clearly the pasture that God was leading David through? The one that David said was green, lush, with still waters. Here, he readily admits that while the heavenly reality of Christ leading you is green pastures and still waters, the earthly reality looks much more like Armageddon. And even there, David proclaims the truth that we would do well to grasp. I will fear no evil. He didn't say that he wouldn't fear. We have plenty of psalms that he wrote proved that he feared. But what he is saying is that despite being afraid here in this realm, he knew that his soul was secure with his Lord, who is his shepherd. And here also we see what the difference is between his relationship with the good shepherd and many who now claim to be flock or uh, sheep of his flock. Today, we are told to expect a personal, emotional relationship with the Lord. You should get the Holy Spirit bumps when you're in worship. You should be slain in the Spirit. You should be overcome to the point that you bark like a dog, cluck like a chicken, or babble like a baby. That's how you know that you are actually saved in, in the presence of God. Throw out your mind and allow your emotions to reign. This is not the God of the Bible. The one who said in Isaiah, Come, now let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your, your skins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will become like wool. No. He has given you a mind to reason with, to think with, to know with. And this is the reason that David feared no evil. Not because he felt, but because he knew that God was with him. And how did he know that? His rod and his staff comforted him. Those were the tools of the shepherd. 
the instruments that he used to direct and correct his sheep. David didn't say that the hugs of the shepherd comforted him. It was that rod and the, the staff that corrected him. The rod of correction, the staff of direction. It was the truth of the word of God in his life that was the rod and the staff. Well, do you also not have the same rod and staff in your life? But my life is hard. It's drudgery. It's unfulfilling. Good. You're in good company. Listen to verse 5 of that psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Can you not see how over David moves from this life to the real life? In this life, he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and he may not have feared evil. In this life, he was in the presence of his enemies. But then he looked to the truth that he knew. I was blind, but now I see. I may be walking through the valley of shadow of death in the presence of my enemies, but Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is leading me. He has given me his word. He has given me his spirit. He is the one who has led me into the presence of my enemies. And there he is preparing a table for me. And he is anointing my head with oil. And my cup overflows. And verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Saints, this is the reality of the goodness of God. He has come for judgment, and that should cause you to sit up and take notice, because you deserve judgment. Eternal wrath for eternal treason. But Christ came for judgment. And you have been given him by the Father. And he, in love for you, because of this, willingly, lovingly has taken action on your behalf. He has pushed you aside as the wrath of God was being directed at you. He willingly, lovingly, released you from the bondage of sin and shackled himself in your place. He came for judgment, your judgment, my judgment. And because he has done this, we can enter through him to the green pastures of the Father. And we can know that he has given us life and life more abundantly. We can know that he is leading us, directing us, holding our hand through this valley of the shadow of death. And because he's holding our hand, we can say like David that we shall fear no evil. And we know that his rod of correction is proof of his leading us. And that because he is the great I am, the door in and out of the green pastures, we can know that we, like David, will dwell in the house 
of the Lord forever. Forever. Let's pray.